0: Pentecostal worldview, and that's something I'm really excited and uh, intrigued to hear. Um, the Pentecostal worldview is is simply revolutionary. the The movement that spawned in the early 20th century has really been the driving force of uh, Christianity ever since. Uh, Pentecostal faith, Spirit-filled uh, Christianity, is really what accounts for most of the growth of the church throughout the world. In fact, statistics indicate that if not for the Pentecostal church, if not for the spirit-filled uh, aspect of the faith, um, if you just took every other denomination, Christianity would be declining and not growing. But as it is, the, the Pentecostal movement is, is blowing up around the world. Why? Because people around the world, they do believe in a spiritual realm, and they do understand that there is a real God. There's real encounters between God and the forces of darkness. We're seeing that all over the world, and so God is moving amazingly. And uh, this is something we need to reclaim, and this is something we need to persevere in lest we lose that original fire and what makes us distinct and become like the rest of evangelicalism, Sip in Java and having little chats and kind of going the way of the church growth movement. Amen. We want to maintain that um, Pentecostal power. So let's welcome our visionary leader, Pastor Joe Erostick. Jesus
1: yes. And Pastor Jared, thank you. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. I don't have a lot of time to get into the various uh, passages, but this is probably the Pentecostal uh, passage that sets forth our motif. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in uh, Jerusalem during the time of the um, the Festival of Pentecost, and the people are asking them, "What's going on? Are they drunk?" And then Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter responds in verse fifteen of chapter two, Acts chapter two, verse fifteen. These people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now notice how this is all grounded in the Old Testament. This is not a new thing to them. This is a fulfillment of the old thing. So it's not a a new movement that has its origin in the present. It may be a new movement to the people now coming at this time. But it's a a movement based in the past prophecies. This is the hope of the messianic uh, era. Now, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even all my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, uh, as we look into this, we have to understand the context Is that the prophet Joel is looking forward to the messianic era when the Holy Spirit is poured out? And primarily the Jewish people missed the uh, Messiah. majority of them did, even though the, the first disciples were all Jewish. But a lot of them missed it because their hearts were hard and they didn't see the two roles of the Messiah. That he had to do a priestly role, coming first to offer sacrifice, then coming back to rule and reign as a king. And uh, what Paul, uh, what Peter here is saying is that Uh, They are together as one in in Jesus, but right now, between them, between the priestly role, Jesus has gone to heaven, the sacrifice has been made, it's before the Father, now the blood of the Lamb has been given there, and before he comes back and rules and reigns as king, there is an age of the church to reach the entire world, Jew and Gentile, the age of the gospel, uh, the age of the Great Commission, the age of grace, and so... Um, the early Pentecostals around 125 years ago, late 1800s, early 1900s, began to experience this in a fresh way. It wasn't lost over the time of church history, but it was just buried and it wasn't mainstream. And so we learned a little bit about that last week in our Doctrine of the Trinity, looking to the church fathers and history. Well, right around the sixth, seventh century, Roman Catholicism growing, seizing power, and then fighting with the Eastern Church, and the uh, the split of 1000 A.D., which they call the Great Schism, which is the Eastern Church is leaving the Western Church, which was Catholicism. And so, whenever you argue about Roman Catholicism, just bring up the Greek Orthodox argument or the Orthodox argument, which is they were there before them, and so that kind of disproves. Uh, the Roman Catholic argument right away and points to the, the reason of the great schism and then for about the next 500 years you have a church that's really going dark in a lot of ways so we can call that the dark ages the middle ages but really the reason for that is because the church is is, is getting power from the politics of that day and they're working together with the government trying to establish like a Christian Empire and there's a lot of problems with that. And by the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, uh, the world is ready for a change. And so the Great Reformation really brings back to light uh, Sola Scriptura and what we know as the solas of the Reformation Sola Gloria, Sola Christas, only for God's glory, only for Jesus, uh, only the Bible, etc. And so what comes out of that then is a freedom for the theologians to study and to live and practice their faith. So you see a resurgence then of mission work. Though there was some mission work in the, uh, the, the, the time of what we call the Dark Ages and during that time of Roman Catholicism, mostly that mission work was still to expand Christendom, to expand their empires. And there were some good uh, missionaries at that time, some movements, and you may uh, want to study that, like the Jesuits and their hearts to, to heart to go out and do mission work. Uh, There's actually a Martin Corsese movie right now about, I believe, the Jesuit missionaries. You can go and check out. But uh, anyways, uh, the mission movement bursts, and then around this same time of the love of the nations, the recapturing of Scripture, the going back to our our faith, there's this real... um, Sense of organizing the church in a new way as the uh, expansion into America is happening, as America is growing to be a world power, and also the uh, understanding of discipleship. And that's where you see the Wesleyan Methodist movement start. So they're capturing the Moravian heart of missions. They're coming into the new world of America. They're organizing their churches methodically, being known as the Methodist because they had such a strong method. But undergirding that with John Wesley is the heart of holiness, the heart of sanctification, Christian perfection, being all that God called us to be. And so with this um, passion to reach the the new lands of America with the gospel, establishing churches, circuit-riding preachers, and really emphasizing the work of salvation, it only took a few more years, a few decades after that until those are now looking, these radical Methodists are now looking at the Scriptures, and they're saying now, there's still more, though. Uh, The Reformation brought us back to the love of the Bible, to the love of Christ, to seeing the priesthood of the believer. The Methodists have brought us back, and the Anabaptists there brought us back to the gospel preaching, and the Methodists specifically with sanctification and Christian perfectionism. Uh, But we still see this miraculous side of the Bible that's not really found in our everyday practice and so As we learn with uh, uh, Pentecostal history starting, probably people pick different parts uh, of the history to point where maybe it started. Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Charles Perham in his Bible school and seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or uh, definitely by the time of William J. Seymour in Los Angeles being inspired by Perham with the baptism of the Holy Spirit on Bonnie Ray Street in Los Angeles experiencing the power of God and then moving to Azusa Street and having the three-year Azusa Street revival, basically from like the uh, 1902 to 1905 or whatever was the height of it. And and from there, all the major Pentecostal denominations. But their heart was always... Grounded and rooted in that real thick, weighty, evangelical, uh, Protestant faith, these Pentecostals who are starting at that time to identify the need for the supernatural, the need for sons and daughters alike to prophesy, as we hear here in, in Acts, and uh, this idea of dreams and visions and a global outpouring of the Spirit, because Peter also ends. Uh, here as the people ask him, what must we do to be saved? uh, He says, repent and be baptized, in verse 38, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And we see him referring back to the Acts 1-8 promise of of the Father that Jesus said, because now this promise is not only for that early church, those in that moment, but it's gonna be for as many as the Lord God calls, and he says in verse eight of Acts chapter one, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Earth. And so Peter is saying that's going to continue on, and what Joel said is going to happen. All of this is going to happen. And so those early Pentecostals, they're seeking the more, they receive it, and now they go forth to the nations, and many of them coming from mainline denominations as the Methodists, the Baptists. Uh, They start coming into the fold, and they immediately start going out into the foreign mission field. And over the next hundred years, as we call the century of Pentecost, basically like from uh, 1905 to 2005, uh, there's books that's been written about that. The extreme amount of growth that the church experienced is unprecedented in all of church history. Now the majority, they say, 80% of all Christians around the world are spirit-filled. The fastest-growing movements in the world are Pentecostal. In places like Brazil... Argentina, Mexico, and Latin America, and then moving into Africa, the African nations of revival, Uganda, Mozambique, Nigeria, etc. Then going into China, and then into Southeast Asia, India, all of the fastest, uh, South Korea as well, all the fastest growing movements over the last hundred years in these mission nations have been uh, Pentecostal. Uh, The American Pentecostalism uh, faced a challenge. Uh, as it came into the 50s and 60s, but God rejuvenated it through the charismatic renewal. Uh, these were a bunch of hippies basically going countercultural to the sex and drugs revolution, and they carried it in to the 21st century. And so now you see Pentecostalism met, mixed with uh, being charismatic, but there's really no difference in what I'm presenting here to you today. Uh, both believing in the Holy, Holy Spirit and a baptism of empowerment with signs and wonders that follow. Uh, The distinct Pentecostal doctrine is that we believe speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Where the charismatic may differ on that. Some charismatics may believe that speaking in tongues is the initial sign. Or they may just simply say that... uh, speaking in tongues is one of the initial signs, and and that to me is not an issue. That's not, If I'm arguing that, that's a good argument, because I'm talking to someone that's spiritually minded, believes in spiritual gifts, and now we're just order uh, are arguing over the order of it. Now I still stand on the basic premise that it is through Scripture, especially the book of Acts, that it shows that it's the initial sign, speaking in tongues. But now that you have a basic history of Pentecostalism, which once again, I mean, how much could I do? That was 10 minutes worth. I mean, there are volumes written on this. There are studies now on this, and it's, it's amazing what God has done through Pentecostalism. But what I want to do is talk to you, specifically here right now, because many of you showed up. And, and by age, this was not a fault of your own, and by the state of the church, once again being as it was, not a fault of your own. But you showed up at a time when Pentecostalism in America is on its deathbed. Uh, you have showed up at a time where it is not the movement it once was. Aside from the assemblies of God, most mainline Pentecostal denominations are dying or stagnant or have lost their traction, Um, and the assemblies of God has changed dramatically over the years. And so now this is where I want to address to you some of these things that you may see that you may think is common to Pentecostalism, but actually is not. And so now for me to do this, I have to name some names, and I just want to preface this by saying everybody I'm going to talk about now, I believe is actually a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. So I believe they are Christians, but now I need to address them as a fellow Christian and critique where they're leading the body of Christ, okay? So I'm not treating them as an unbeliever. I'm gonna treat them as a believer in Christ. And since they are well known, they are able to take this kind of criticism. They have talk shows, they have megachurches, they hold conferences, they have Facebook followings in the hundreds of thousands. So this is not a personal attack against them, so I'm not just picking on some guy down the road saying, let me just nail him for the failures of Pentecostalism in the 21st century. Let, let me just use those people as an example. But first, let's, let's get the mindset, the worldview of Pentecostalism, okay? First of all, when we talk about a worldview, what we mean is the lenses by which we see the world. Everybody has a worldview, and Pentecostals have the right one. I'll just say that right now. Everybody has a worldview. The atheist has one, the Catholic has one, the Orthodox has one, the Muslim has one. The, the one who says they don't have one has one because that's the one of not having one and being self-deceived. Uh, everybody has one. And the Pentecostal has one. If you look at the two main Pentecostal denominations that have been well-organized, and, and this is not to say the other ones are not, but I think these just kind of speak in history for, for a lot of us as Pentecostals. You look at the Assemblies of God and the Four Square uh, Gospel Movement. Both of them have Pretty much the same four fundamental things of the world view. And the four squares of the four square gospel were marked out by these symbols. Uh, Jesus Christ and his, his work of, of the gospel and salvation. Uh, Jesus as baptizer. That's the four square of the, uh, of the four square uh, gospel movement. Jesus as the uh, healer. And then Jesus coming back again. Uh, to to uh, judge the world. Uh, for the Assemblies of God, there are four distinctives, Jesus again, but instead of um, uh, having a baptizer, uh, the Assemblies of God, I believe, has um, the empowerment, but let me just double check uh, this right here. Uh, the salvation, divine healing, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and second coming are for the Assemblies of God, and then the four square uh, being Uh, Jesus Christ the Savior, the baptizer, the healer, and the coming king. And so the only difference between uh, the four square and the assemblies of God is that uh, I believe the baptizer, let me see, nope, they have them all the same, exactly the same. Uh, So... I was going to say for them, baptism uh, for the four square may have just been water, but I think that includes baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they both have those same fundamental views. Now, let me say it in just a little bit of a different way, uh, because I think I can capture the thought a little bit better than those, than those four. Here's how Pentecostals basically looked at the world. I'll still give you four. They looked at Jesus as Savior and the gospel needing to be preached as one View that they would see their ministry as. So Jesus is Lord, and we're going to tell you all about it. While they're telling you all about it, they're doing it with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, endowment of power. They are very much in tune with the Holy Spirit in their service from beginning to end. They are operating in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's speaking in tongues in their prayer meeting before the service. During their song service, they're giving God the opportunity to give them words and special songs to sing. During their time of offering and giving to the Lord, they're doing it under inspiration and then they're preaching under inspiration with times of interaction, okay? The endowment of power. Then they are believing, oh, excuse me, I I stepped out of order here. They are preaching that gospel, believing then that there is a true sanctifying work that is happening, a true change in the gospel, something that when it was preached to them had a mark left in them, and now they can say, I'm sanctified, I'm changed. Then they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they're experiencing it. And then lastly, they are looking at the world towards Jesus' second coming. Everything is about the second coming. Now, as you notice, all I did was simply put sanctification instead of healing. So the Assemblies of God in Foursquare have healing, and I put sanctification. But that's because... They would have considered healing a part of the endowment of power, and sanctification would have been for them in the gospel. But I'm just clarifying it, because I think this says it better for you to understand, okay? Now, for most of us, we don't know how to go back 100 years and and do these, uh, see this in the Pentecostal worldview. Now, I have the journals, I can show you where to go, uh, books that summarize their preaching, like we said, the 100 years of... um, Pentecostalism is a good book to get, Uh, God's Generals is another one, and then there's an encyclopedia of Pentecostal things, and then then there's also different journals from the different movements that you can get. Uh, The Pentecost, uh, the Assemblies of God Evangel, uh, their journal, then there's other journals that have been out there that you can go back and listen to their message because they, you know, they didn't have internet that time and so their, their, their print was the way they got you their messages if you weren't there listening to it. And that's the way it was from, from the moment we had the printing press. You know, that's how you can go back and listen to John Wesley's or Charles Spurgeon's sermons is listen to those people print them out. Okay, but what I'm going to do is just point back just 20 years in my life so you can go back and see this clearly, just clearly. People that you can go back and listen to, who are known as figureheads, are A. W. Tozer, David, or Leonard—no, Ra- uh, David Raven, Leonard Ravenhill, David's his son, Le- Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, and Steve Hill. I would say if you wanted to see a little bit of the '80s which is a part of Pentecostal history I may touch on a little bit, go back and listen to Jimmy Swagger and start with his crusade in Chicago, I believe in 1986, would be like the height of Jimmy Swagger's ministry. And you'll understand the Pentecostal worldview. A.W. Tozer, Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, Steve Hill, with a splash of Jimmy Swagger in there. What you will see... When you look at all of their preachings, their writings, their expression of their faith, you will see these four things there. You will see that Jesus in the gospel is center. Don't let the gospel coalition and Calvinists get you thinking that Pentecostals were not gospel centered. We've been more gospel centered than any Calvinist, any Presbyterian that they have ever had in their history. We were as much if not more gospel centered than Charles Spurgeon. Okay. Don't let them make you think Pentecostals were just running around like chickens with their heads cut off making, you know, noise. That was not us. We would have esoteric experiences, but when that brother would get up, when that sister would get up, they would preach the gospel like you have never heard before. And I have been in meetings with some of these people, and I have sensed God's power upon them. Another good one, that's I can't believe I forgot, Lord forgive me, Lester Summerall, my personal hero, Lester Summerall. And many of these people were called into ministry from from just an early age or spared from sickness and disease, like Lester Sumrall on a deathbed, or they were just powerfully impacted by the Lord. I mean, their testimonies themselves are amazing. Add, please, Lester Sumrall to that list. But then they would preach the gospel. But as they were preaching, you would notice inside that message, because there's always a chance for nonbelievers and believers to be gathered, so let's just say like, like uh, uh, Steve Hill is coming to preach to this church. As he is coming, it's an evangelistic mindset. The Pentecostal evangelist is coming. He is going to bring that gospel and Jesus-centered message so white hot, there will be no confusion with those in the audience. But the Christians who are there will also be getting prodded as well because he'll be speaking to the mindset that they ought to be sanctified, that they ought to be holy, they ought to be separate. So in their messages, They're going to say, this applies to you too. This is not just for your neighbor. This is for you. Okay? And then what they're going to express is that there's spiritual gifts that are here available to us right now. And they are going to be demonstrating it by their preaching. I am a testimony as I'm preaching that there's power. And so their preaching is coming with power. And so in, in the audience, you are supposed to see in them a demonstration of power. That reality is shifting. Spiritual realms are opening up in front of you. And that demons could get cast out by that man on the stage. Sicknesses could get healed while that man is praying for them. Do you get it? There's a real understanding of that. And that words are piercing through the heart. Okay, There's prophecy that man or woman may speak directly to your life in a very special way. Just as my family, my wife and I prayed for a woman at second service, we are speaking directly to her, not just a random prayer, not just Lord bless her. We're speaking to things and she's like, how do you know this? And God is ministering to her. And then she gets filled with the Holy Spirit as she gets saved. And, then, and, and what's happening here is that then they're pointing you back To the messages of the apostles, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They're telling you that there is a kingdom coming, and so whatever sacrifices we make now for this gospel, whatever we have to do to get it out across the world, it's worth it because Jesus is coming back. This is a reality to the Pentecostal preacher. Heaven and hell are always in their messages because they know this is coming. Judgment is coming. Is everybody getting this? This is not what you see today. This is not what you see from the main leaders of the Pentecostal movement. Let me put up their names so you can follow with me. Joel Osteen, pastoring the largest church in America today, is a Pentecostal preacher. His father was a great Pentecostal preacher. T.D. Jakes represents... All that is good and what is bad in the African-American church. African-Americans were at the heart of the founding of Pentecostalism. I wish we had William Seymour's preaching. You may find one. That's why I didn't put it here on the internet. But I would definitely say, go back and read him. The African-American founder of American Pentecostalism was a black man. If, if William Seymour and T.D. Jakes were to sit down and discuss with each other this worldview, I dare to say if William Seymour would even think T.D. Jakes would be saved. I mean this in all seriousness. If David Wilkerson was to sit down with Joel Osteen, I would dare to say that David Wilkerson may question if Joel Osteen is really saved, really saved, and that was, was my concern as well talking to someone that was best friends with Joel Osteen is I asked him, do you believe Joel's really saved? Now, in his mind, that made him laugh, and, make, it made, and he actually then compared me to Jimmy Swagger because he used to go to Jimmy Swagger's Bible college. That made him laugh and think I was a legalist, but that was an honest question of Pentecostals. That was an honest question to question your salvation if you were so off In Jesus in the gospel, sanctification, the idea of being endued with power and understanding and revolving your life around the second coming of Jesus, as Paul did. Paul said, I'm not even going to marry. I don't want to waste any time. I would encourage the rest of you, stay single as me. If you're already married, stay married. But Jesus is coming back. Okay? These people are so far away from the second coming message, you probably haven't even heard it from their messages, okay? And then just to name off, just a few more who are popular uh, today uh, would be like uh, Judah Smith, really popular in the Assembly of God, uh, um, youth meetings and and conferences. Carl Lentz is another popular uh, young one that would be like around my age as well. And these These representatives of Pentecostalism have actually brought us into reproach by our Calvinist brothers. Now here is what we have in similarity with the Paul Washers, with the Pipers, with the MacArthur's. Who doesn't like anything to do with Pentecostalism? But here's what we had in common with them as Pentecostals: is we were gospel-centered. We believed in a changed life. We believed in endowment of power, and we believed in the second coming. That is now why there's been a resurgence of what they call the young, reformed, and the restless. And some of these videos that you'll start seeing circulating on Facebook by people like Apologia and Jeff Durbin and so forth is uh, The Calvinist is one of the videos coming out soon to really promote Calvinism. And another one is called Unpopular. And the way they start off these videos are very similar, as far as I can remember. And there's one particular that's out already unpopular that really just starts off by showing our Pentecostal preachers. Starts off by showing Joel Osteen. Kenneth Copeland and so forth, and then says, we grew up in an age, there's these young guys, and it says, we grew up in an age where we saw the commercialization of the gospel, where we heard one or two verses, you know, preach and then springboard to everything else, and uh, we, we never saw the connection to the gospel, to the scriptures, and all of these things. Well, that was because of a failure on these people's part you see. And so where did they find that? They found that through John Piper. They found that through John MacArthur. They found that through these Calvinist preachers who would sacrifice their church growth to stay true to the Word of God. Some of them, even like uh, Tim Keller in New York, not ordaining women, not allowing women in ministry, still and in staying strong on that, and because of that and other reasons, he was rejected from receiving an award from a, uh, a, a school, um, a Princeton. And so these Calvinists stay true to their convictions, and they began to suffer for it in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And so what, what they bring against us in a lot of ways, other than the women in ministry debate, we have the same problems with our own movement. And so who are some corrective people to the movement of Pentecostalism? Like we would see trying to correct this is we would see people like Michael Brown. But they're very few and far and in between. Even the denominational leaders of the assemblies of God, and I have a lot of respect for George Wood and so forth, don't step out into this realm of correction, where they really say these are problems in our movement publicly, like you would see a Paul Washer. You know these clips come out from Paul Washer, and it's like boom, 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 and you're just sitting here going, I give up, I surrender, you know? Uh, You hear these things from John Piper. You hear these things from R.C. Sproul, or you hear from John MacArthur at the Shepherds Conference, or you hear from Wretched with Todd Friel, and these guys are just tearing it down, and in so many ways we agree with them, so many ways, because we're fed up with it too. But what happened? What happened in this world view just in the last 20 years for my next 15 minutes that I can tell you what I think happened. Now, I mean, I don't have a statistical database to go to and all of this. This is just anecdotal. And it's meant to be encouragement. And I wish that I could have more scriptures to be sharing with you and all of this, but once again, for the sake of time, I just need to lay these out as as fast as I can, okay? So you got Jesus in the gospel. What did they trade that for? What did that become? It became Jesus and the feeling message or Jesus and the social gospel. It was no longer come and die. So, hopefully, people didn't lose me for too long. Let me see. Um how far I had that microphone off. Let me see. Nobody's saying anything right now. Well, I don't know how long it was off. Uh, Ishmael says T.D. Jakes is not saved. Well, he has come around to accepting the Trinity in some ways. But anyways, that's another discussion. Uh, He wasn't saved as long as he did not accept the Trinity. That is true. Okay. But watch this right here. Jesus is God, the gospel transforms, come to Jesus, right? That has been changed, that has been changed to come to Jesus for a better life. Come to Jesus and be renovated because you're pretty good already. Now think about this. I sat in, I don't know, guess, 12 messages from Steve Hill at the Brownsville Revival. That was never the message, That was never the message. When you would call in a Pentecostal evangelist just 15 years ago, when the evangelist would come, you would know for sure that's not the message. Just even go back, like I said, to Jimmy in the 1980s. What the message was for the Pentecostal is, is that there's two types of people in this room. There's not a third option. There are sinners and there are saints. There is heaven and there is hell. And what that gospel preacher would do, now there would be times that the Pentecostal preacher could be brass for the sake of being rude to shake you up. And you can get some funny things on the internet for that, okay? Uh, But these Pentecostal preachers that were successful and anointed would not use their terminology to be brass and rude, they would use it to wake you up. So for example, when Steve Hill would mock the backslidden church of his day and call them blind leaders and put on a blind man's Sunglasses and start walking around and saying what the critics of the revival would say at the churches down the road. He's not mocking their pastors to make them feel bad about themselves. He is doing that as the prophet Elijah did on Mount Carmel to show them that these are false leaders. (coughs) But it was confrontational. Your toes would get stepped on if you were going to one of those churches. So let's say he puts on his glasses and he starts walking around and he says, some of you have been told not to come to that Pentecostal church, but your pastor is just as backslidden as you are. He's in just as much sin as you are. He's looking at porn just like you are. He's a blind guide. You need to turn from a religion and get into a relationship. When Steve Hill was preaching like that, it was intentional to offend the mind and open the heart. But it wasn't meant to be rude. Thank you. I am in my third week with a throat ailment, and I am almost over it. If you could get me a mint from the back, that might save me a bit as well. In second service yesterday, my throat was so dry I swallowed some dust, I had to stop for about 10 minutes and clear my throat. That was the first time I ever had to stop preaching. Literally, I had to stop preaching Daryl had to read the scriptures, had to walk off the stage, get it out. It was one of the most embarrassing uh, times I've ever had. But, you know, people understood because my throat is is still healing. The next thing about sanctification is that they traded uh, sanctification for excuses to sin. So today, as I go around talking to Pentecostals that are my age, and especially people on this list, A sanctification is not even an issue. I mean, it's not even a discussion where that was all really the Pentecostals were debating about for the first so many years. I'm not talking about the oneness heresy movement. I'm talking about within great Pentecostal churches. The discussion was, is there a second baptism of sanctification and then a third baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues? Or is there only one baptism? Where we're sanctified and given tongues, are we sanctified at salvation, which is the belief that I take up from a theologian here in Chicago during the early 1900s, and I have his journals, uh, you know. And so they were debating this. The Assemblies of God changed their stance over the time in sanctification from their first initial one in the early 1900s to 1960. Sanctification was a key component of their preaching. And it wasn't just line preaching as it was called sometimes, which is how long are the girls' skirts? Are they too high up? Are the guys not wearing their suits? Are they showing off their muscles? Are people swimming together at the beaches? Pentecostalism had ditches, and we don't have time to get into that. But their primary understanding of sanctification, whether it was progressive, whether it was another baptism, or whether it was complete in salvation, the Pentecostals all shared one common belief, you're holy to the Lord now. Your life is a living testimony of the power of God over sin. Sin which had defeated us in the garden. Sin which had caused so many of us to fall like David and Solomon and so many. Now was once and for all defeated and destroyed by the gospel, by Jesus. And so now through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we're saved and sanctified. We are set apart. We are a holy people. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. So wherever sin is, we repent of it. We turn away from it. We preach against it clearly. I remember hearing Lester Summerall in a small hotel meeting preaching against homosexuality. People would find it offensive today but he wasn't doing it limb-wristed in a feminine voice. He wasn't doing that to mock them for their own shame. He was doing it to show them men were not meant to be effeminate. Men were not meant to be lip-wristed. Men were created in the image of God, meant to have dominion. They preached and they lived out that message, loving the homosexuals, seeing them transformed, but they preached against it. In their generations, they preached against whatever sins brought people into ditches. Whatever sin that would have people think this is normal, they would preach against it. David Wilkerson famously throwing away his TV and praying and beginning to start uh, being able to hear then what would then start Teen Challenge because he's not watching TV but reading the newspaper and hearing about gangs in New York City. Uh, the next thing with uh, switching the baptism of, of power, what they, ex- they uh, ch- exchanged, the endowment of power, speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts, what they exchanged it with was humanism. And so sanctification became um, basically moralism, just doing things that the culture finds correct, and empowerment got switched with humanism. So when T.D. Jakes has his talk show, he is not depending upon the Holy Spirit, the gospel, laying on of hands, speaking the word to give them their freedom for their problems. He is using the same humanism that Oprah Winfrey and his counterpart, Dr. Phil, use. Do you see the difference? The Pentecostal preacher can be humanistic, meaning we love the human race. We believe in the flourishment of humans. So in that sense, we are humanists. We want human flourishing. We certainly don't want people sick. We don't want people in, in, in sin that brings them social calamity. But it's not the source of our power human wisdom is not the source of our counseling one prophetic word can set someone free from the years of abuse one laying on of hands with the transference of power by the holy spirit can break yokes of addiction we have been famous for bringing things to the altar not that this space here is any sacred more sacred than any other space but the Pentecostal makes a metaphorical place in their services called the altar where the believer steps into faith and activates the word of God. So the one who's addicted to cigarettes comes to the altar with their cigarettes and throws them down and never smokes again. That's Pastor Lawrence's testimony. Those who have looked at pornography come and confess it and never look at it again. Those are the testimonies of many in our church here. And so, and then the endowment of power goes beyond just the power to live holy. As we were talking about sanctification, it goes to the prophetic gifts. Remember in Acts, your sons and daughters will prophesy. That means they'll be anointed like, the, like Jesus was anointed to do the works of Jesus. Sadly, all throughout our history, there's been charlatans. There's been people who have faked prophecy, faked healing, and so forth. But just because there's a fake dollar bill doesn't mean there's a real dollar bill. doesn't mean there's not a real dollar bill, rather. And so we need to reclaim that, don't we? I've got to get to my close here. And then they've exchanged the second coming for your best life now. Uh, Everything... For them is in the now. I have my beachfront condo now. I don't want to offend and lose people now. I want a TV ministry now. I want my best life now. Now the Christian life is really the best life of pleasure. I totally agree with Christian hedonism as taught by John Piper and C.S. Lewis talked about it as well. It is not that these people want pleasure more than us. They are just satisfied with a puddle of it where those who truly hear the heart cry out for pleasure, finds it in God and sees the ocean of it. So don't think that we are the prudes and they're just having fun. But no, what they're doing is trading the real pleasure for something less than heavenly pleasures forevermore. Their seeker-sensitive model of church giving them this uh, five minutes of fame to be Justin Bieber's pastor, uh, to be friends with the famous, to be brought on to talk shows like Katie Couric or to be friends with Oprah Winfrey. They are trading the uh, mindset of the early apostles, which is Maranatha, even come so, Lord Jesus, come now. And I've always said this before, and it bears repeating. When Jesus is coming to judge the world, Oprah's screaming out, No, no, I'm losing my kingdom. I'm losing my fame. I'm losing all that I have. And we're shouting out, Yes, yes, yes. We're saying, Give it to us, Jesus. Take her mansion and give it to Yuli. Take her jewels and put it upon my wife. I was just reading Isaiah 14. We will take them captive, even the Bible says. Those who are remaining, not all will be our captives, but some of the worst of Babylon who don't die in the Armageddon, they will be taken captive. They will be put under prison watch because of what they did. And then the rest of them will be the citizens of our kingdom that we rule and reign with, in, with Christ. That's a reality to the Pentecostal is I'm going to rule and reign with Christ. That's a reality of what I'm preaching towards is the judgment to come. And so all we have to do today is if we want to see what these Pentecostals saw is do what they did. Don't make these trades. What do I compare these trades to? Exchanging the gospel for just feelings and exchanging the gospel instead of come and die, it's, it's come and have your best life, whatever. It, it, instead of exchanging sanctification for moralism or for the empowerment of power for humanism or the second coming for uh, your, your comfort here, what we do as we go back to these things and we lift up the name of Jesus again. We adorn the gospel with our lives and give it our best. Don't be discouraged because of the size of your ministry or the amount of money in your ministry. All, everybody say all. All of our founders started just the way you did. All of them. Azusa Street started in a house church that moved to an old horse stable. We were sawdust preachers preaching in barns. Some were all preached in barns in the countrysides of America. These men started off with nothing. Steve Hill was a small-time missionary as God grew him in the ministry. David Wilkerson, a church pastor of a little old church, These men changed the world. Jimmy Swaggart, for all of his mistakes, was an amazing evangelist and a show of what God could do. Um, Brother Anthony and Brother George, two of the founders of SUM, went to Jimmy Swaggart's school. It shows what God can do. He had almost 10 million, I believe, coming in a month to support that ministry. But he was an old country preacher that God raised up. What would have happened with him if he never would have fallen? Amen? Recapture and reclaim the Pentecostal heritage. With things that are fundamental and things that are based upon the Word of God stand true, never change. Things that are fashionable change. It's okay to have lights. It's okay to wear shorts. We don't have to wear suits. Yes, I might have had some disagreements with these men on those issues, but I guarantee you, because I know some of their spiritual children, like Pastor Ray, like Um, others that I have been with or uh, Michael Brown who was a contemporary of Steve Hill and was trained under Letter Ravenhill listen to me these men would have understood our hearts they would have said I get it many of them understood what David Wilkerson was doing in the inner city as he dressed down the church these true Pentecostals understood it wasn't in their platforms as they grew bigger it wasn't in their suits as they could afford them as they got older no it, it was always in these things This is what made them Pentecostal, their belief in the gospel, their belief in sanctification, their belief in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the endowment of power, and the belief in the second coming. And here's the example I want to give you in closing. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and who? What was the other one? Esau, thank you. One day Esau's hungry, he's starving. Jacob has food. Esau says, I'll do whatever it takes to get some of your food, Jacob. Jacob, the schemer that he was, said, Really? You'll do anything? Yeah, I'll do anything. Give me your birthright. Give me your inheritance. And I'll give you this bowl of beans that I have. And he traded it because he only looked at what he got out of that moment. And later on, even according to the New Testament, he sighed to sought it, seek it back with weeping, and it was never given. He lost it. It serves as an example of when you make an eternal trade in a temporary moment. You, you do something for a temporary pleasure, a temporary benefit, but it has long-lasting results. I do believe these brothers may be going to heaven, but sadly they are leading our generation to hell, not intentionally, but unintentionally by diverting our attention to these different things. And just as the kings of Israel, we're pretty good, some of them, but the next generation would be worse. This is where we're heading in the worst direction because we're exchanging these important pillars and foundations. We're trading the gospel. And so it's no surprise that people who are directly related to them are now beginning to affirm homosexuality, are beginning to be okay with pro-choice and say it's not a, abortion's not really a big issue, are affirming things that are wicked, things that are now considered normal in the culture, but wicked by God. There's one young lady that is now proudly a feminist preacher and all of these things, and she would fit ideally into these, and now she's denying, I believe, a literal hell and these different things. Her name is Rachel Evans, And uh, you can look her up. But you just see how fast you go down this road. Or an assembly of God. Nothing against the assembly of God woman. But she went to the Rockford Masters Commission. Now she's married to her lesbian lover. And you can just tell she took these things just to the next step. That's all she did. Well, if God really wants me happy and I'm happy with this person, it's okay. Right? And so what we want to do is stand back on that truth. God have mercy, bring us all, let's pray. Lord, bring us all to repentance. If we have given in to any of these things, we pray for the greater body of Christ that our brothers and sisters would repent. We love each and every one that we mentioned today, Joel, TD, and Judah, and Carl, and we pray for them to repent and to serve you wholeheartedly. We've seen even a taste of it in some churches as they turn back to you. I know Scott Wilson of Oak Cliff Assembly wrote a book called Clear the Stage, talking about how he went from being a seeker church to a Pentecostal church once again because he saw that he was missing his roots. So, Lord, we do it not just out of traditionalism, but we do it out of obedience. May we capture the heart of the Pentecostal worldview and never let it go. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.